Om kunskapen icke alltid går i det godas och rättas tjänst så är okunnigheten dock alltid våldets och lidernas säkra byte. The Interplanetary Podcast The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind Your hosts in England and the Netherlands Matthew Russell and Julio Brea Du, 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 Anders Jonas Ångström. Hi Matt, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Julio. We've got someone else in an extraordinary turn of fate in the room at the same time as recording the podcast. Well, today we have a Lynn Bold Christmas. Hello! And she happens to be our, our guest and also a sort of co-host, I guess. She's yeah. joining yeah, for the I, full I'm just butting in whether you want me here or not. Sorry, guys. Uh, our listeners just heard a quote from Anders Jonas Angstrom and Lynn read it in native Swedish. <laughs> More or Lynn, less. What does, what does the quote mean? I feel like I would probably not do it justice by translating it or giving an exact translation. Um, but roughly it's saying that even though knowledge may not always be used or be in service of good and just, um, misinformation and ignorance is, however, always the prey of violence and suffering. So even so, even though science might not always be used for good, lack of science will always be used for bad. Something like that. But it sounds a lot better in Swedish, I promise. Well, uh, yeah, but it, and how to say it's quite relevant these days. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Pretty, it's pretty prescient, isn't it? I think I like so. That. He yeah. was probably talking about like you know, competition from his sneaky friends down at Stockholm University instead. But I can definitely see it applied to the current current climate. So <laughs> Anders Jonas Angstrom. Am I saying it correctly, Lynn? Not really, but that's okay. <laughs> it's Anders Jonas Angstrom. Well, that was a pioneer in the field of spectroscopy. And he was at your university, I guess? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, he did his uh, doctorate at uh, the university where I do my research, which is Uppsala University, uh, which is a very old, it's one of the oldest universities in uh, Europe, at least definitely in Scandinavia. It's about an hour north of Stockholm. And there's also been a lot of science people from there. Celsius was also from Uppsala and uh, Linnaeus was also from Uppsala. He's in botany, the guy who decided to give give uh, Latin names to plants and living things. Yeah, two good ones had, and two bad and one baddie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had Angstrom, we had Celsius, now we have Christmas. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. That's it's not a it's not a fake name, I promise. It's a weird name, I know, but yeah, well, yeah, amazingly you're the second Christmas I know. <gasps> you're now. kidding. No, I know another Christmas. Oh my god, you met my dad. <laughs> but, but if, your dad, if, your da- if your dad works at Yamaha, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that one. That will be Uncle <laughs> Uncle Christmas. <laughs> Uncle Christmas. No, it is an English name actually from from a long time ago. Yeah, mm. it was actually a name that's literally just given to people that were born on Christmas. That's it. It's a very boring etymological background. <laughs> Julio was going to try and get away with Christmas has come early on oh. the podcast, but I. I'd, I'm not allowed. I'm not allowing it. You, st- you stole it from me. Yeah. Well, I didn't want. <laughs> it was so good. I just couldn't let you. I couldn't let you take. I couldn't let you have the glory. <laughs> we didn't invite uh, Lynn today just to make puns of her last name. No, oh, really. Although that was that was a big part of it. Oh, I have yeah, to say. Okay. Lynn, tell us a little bit more about you. What do you do? I do research at Uppsala University. 
Um, I come from Sweden um, and I am in Sweden studying here uh, and my field is on exoplanet atmospheres. So my job is to look at planets that are far away, uh, that planets that orbit a star that is not our sun. So really any planets that aren't the ones that you learned at school as a kid. Um, and I look at those <laughs> planets and I look at their atmospheres to see if there's anything fun going on there. So Matt, you know how I like to bring explorers to the to the show, uh, things related to ocean exploration, space exploration, and I thought, what's more out there? What what's more far west than exoplanets <laughs> on other stars? And I'm 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 very big fan of the topic, and I always use this uh, whenever I participate. I I always tend to use this as an excuse to to speak to people I'm interested on what they are doing. It's hard to think of a, a subject that's more interesting than exoplanets and something that didn't really exist, what, 30 years ago? Oh, absolutely. That was a big, for me, that was a big motivation for for studying it. I knew I wanted to study physics. Um, and actually, my when I was a bachelor's undergraduate student, I studied physics with astrophysics. Uh, but the reason I went into it was because I just thought this is the, this is the blank canvas. This is um, one of those fields in a lot of science. It's about, you know, how do we do this more efficiently? How do we do this better? How do we do it more cheaper? Um, but in astrophysics, it's like someone could turn around tomorrow and be like, guys, you know that thing we've been doing? It's not right. We have to start again. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> be like, all right, let's start again. And um, it's just it's just really the, the final frontier, to be cliche. Yeah. So uh, define an exoplanet for me, but just, just so we know exactly what we're going to be talking about, because this is the exoplanet special. That yeah. makes me extra excited to be here. <laughs> um, so exoplanet comes from extrasolar uh, planet. So it's quite literally just a planet that is beyond the sun. So it's extrasolar. So people have thought about the fact that planets might be around other stars pretty much since we figured out that we were planets around a star. But of course, the problem with, with exoplanet uh, detection is that when we look at a lot of the things that we look at in astronomy, like galaxies and stars, they are really big light bulbs hanging in the sky. And planets are not necessarily a source of light themselves. So really, really, we are relying on their host stars, their sun, so to speak, to illuminate them or to in some way indirectly allow us to observe them. Um, it makes them very tricky to spot because they are just the little flecks orbiting around the star. They're not they're not bright objects themselves. Um, and of course, they're much smaller than their host stars. So um, Because we, we, we cannot just point a telescope and exactly. look at, at the planet, right? I mean, it's like trying to, trying to spot a, a fly <laughs> next to a night lamp right, right, in the right. street. Well, I mean, exactly. in all seriousness, here's a question then, yeah. is how... How can we see planets around other stars when when we're not even sure we can see all the planets around our own? <laughs> like we, if we talk about yeah. Planet Nine and Pluto wasn't discovered until really quite recently, and obviously there's yeah. so we're not even sure that we can see all the planets in our own solar system. So how that's do we a, even go about finding any <laughs> outside? Yeah, it's, that's a really good point because the thing is, if you're imagining. Look, you can estimate the size of a forest much better if you're flying over it than in, if you're inside it. Um, so one of the things about, uh, you asked if we've actually been able to, you know, look at a planet and take a picture kind of thing. We have actually been able to, to directly image planets uh, before. It's just very hard to do so. Um, and we need very, very good telescopes and we're kind of getting there. Um, the Our capabilities are increasing amazingly. That's really kind of a 
booming time in, in exoplanet studies right now. But if you imagine yourself, you know, we are all Earth and Jupiter and Mars and all of us, we're all orbiting around the sun in one plane. We're kind of sat on the pancake looking to our sides and seeing our neighbors there. Um, but when we're looking at another system, we can see the whole thing from afar. Um, so in that sense, it can be easier to see, okay, there are six planets going around that star rather than saying, how many neighbors do I have? But of course, you're also a lot closer. So, so when um, even a more distant, really not even a planet, a dwarf planet like Pluto and stuff, uh, when we see them transit the sky or when we see them go across the sky, they're also a lot closer. So that makes it easier when you're trying to look at things that are far away. But could it be that uh, when you're looking at these exoplanets, they tend to be relatively close to the star? And when we're talking about like Pluto, they are quite far from the star as yeah. well, to, you know, in order to observe it. Exactly. At least the effects, they, 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 the light they reflect the, to observe it, uh, or as you will probably explain later, uh, the the effects of the planet, this, the effects of the start of the planet as they cross. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is more visible exactly. when you're far away. In terms of seeing exoplanets, then what, what, what are the kind of major ways that we can actually do it? Because you, you you obviously yeah. can't see them, so so, so how do you yeah. infer that they're there? <laughs> exactly, this is a good point to touch upon. Um, we're talking about detection methods because I mentioned direct imaging, which isn't really like our go-to method in any way because that's would really limit us. There are two methods that are the most common ones that we use. One of them is called radial velocity method or the Doppler um, method. And that is when you have a planet that goes around its host star, its sun, so to speak. Um, and the thing is, we all know that planets go around the, the thing in the middle. What you don't always realize is that actually, even though the planets are so much smaller than their host star, usually, actually, there are asterisks there, you do also have planets that are tugging at the sun itself. And when I'm saying sun, I don't mean our sun, I mean their sun. So a planet going around its sun will actually tug ever so slightly on the central star. Um, simply because they are planets that have mass and things that have mass tug on things that have mass. So even though you might think of the central star, the sun being fixed in the middle of the system and all the other things going around it, it does actually move ever so slightly and it's being kind of pulled towards the planets as they orbit them. So one of the very one of the most popular um, methods of finding exoplanets or one of the methods that has historically been the most popular looks at the light from the central star. And there's something called the Doppler effect, which a lot of the listeners will probably be familiar with. It's the idea that if you have something that is generating a signal if it goes away from you, then the wavelength will be longer because it's being emitted with larger distances between it. And if it's coming towards you, the the peaks and troughs will bunch up. The classic, the classic example, the classic example of the train sound exactly. coming and going. Or, it's kind of like or the ambulance. Exactly. Nino, the ambulance. Nino, no, no. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, and especially yeah, of course, Matt, you you being a sound oh, specialist, yes. you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah we'll just get a little uh, sample in there quick. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but you 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 went into something that I, I remember you and I having a, this discussion for one of the articles we were writing. Uh, the 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 center of gravity of a system. Yes. In which we were trying to explain to the general public about just general orbits, the different types oh, of orbits yeah. in which we put satellites. And I, I was trying to put across that even a satellite, yeah. even a, 
changes a slightly the center of gravity of a star. That's of course, true. you have to go, I don't know, to how many decimals. And <laughs> yeah. It's probably not to the point, but in the case of planets as well, you your center of you have the 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 massive star and tiny planet but yeah. just that just that will make it that the center of gravity is no longer at the center yeah. of the star the you, star is also orbiting the planet yes. as much as the planet is orbiting the star if you the best way to imagine it is if you have uh, two people holding a rope between them and you're both spinning around, you, they're both going to feel the tug of that rope, even if one person is bigger or smaller. I mean, it's still going to be just that tension between them. I know we're talking about gravity, but um, it's kind of easier to visualize it that way. So you can imagine if this, <laughs> you can picture it as if the star is in the middle, all the planets are like kids that are wrapping the maypole with the ribbons and like they're all kind of tugging at the star in their own way. And one of the biggest tools in the toolbox of astronomers today is we look at spectra. We look at the light of uh, stars and things, and we can look at what that light is made out of, thanks to people like our <laughs> our boy Anders Jonas Ångström, um, and we can learn something about, about uh, the chemical composition, whatever the source that is emitting that is. Um, that's actually, I know, a little etymology lesson is that helium comes from helios, the Greek word, or the Greek god for sunlight, because the first time we found it was in the sun. It's so stable that we never detected it through chemistry, and we pointed at the sun, and we were like, what the heck is that? And then, yeah, it was helium. <laughs> um, so um, the Doppler effect means that when these planets are kind of tugging at their central star, they are moving the star in a very slight way, but enough of a way that it means that we have these fingerprints for chemical uh, species. And we know that like helium looks like this, hydrogen looks like this, lithium looks like this. And because we have, we know where those uh, fingerprints are supposed to be, when something is moving, that shifts the position of that. So then when we cross correlate to the hydrogen we have in a lab stationary on Earth, and then we look at the one in the star, and if we see that it's moving in such a way, we can figure out how fast it's moving and by how much, and then we can do some clever math to figure out if there's something pulling on it. Now, let, let, let me see if I understood from a, non, from a dumb, not uh, scientist <laughs> point of view. Uh, if a star was there and there was no planets around it, no mm -hmm. asteroids, nothing, it would just stay in place. You would see it always at the same color, except obviously as it goes through life and changes. Right. And um, But it would look always the same to you. And what you are saying is the moment you put a, a planet or something around it, because of the Doppler effect and the s slight movements, okay, yeah. you're talking about changes in the spectrum, but... Could it be translated as like slight changes in the color of the star as well? Yeah, basically. We call it the wobble because it's really, it's just wobbling. They're really not big that, changes. That sounds very yeah, scientific. Exactly. <laughs> oh, astronomers love a good silly name for things. <laughs> and but, wobble is definitely a good but contender. We, for example, we know our sun is wobbling, right? We, we know because yes. Jupiter's pulling it literally far enough that their, their center oh, of gravity yeah. is outside of the sun's atmosphere. So we, we've got this ludicrous wobble with our own sun because <laughs> Jupiter's massive. But you make a good point because Jupiter is, for instance, a really big planet. And one of the problems with the effect, with this kind of wobble method is that it overwhelmingly biases us towards finding large planets that give a big wobble. Because if you happen to have a planetary system where there are only little tiny baby planets that are really not going to make a big wobble, then it's very hard to find them with that method. Um, and actually, the one of the other methods, which is the transit method, which I'm going to talk about, um, is the same problem where Basically, 
the methods that we use are usually indirect detections. And then that favors big planets and dense planets and things like that. It's nearly everything in astronomy is found or is detected indirectly. And you can imagine, okay, imagine you have a mouse in your house. I don't <laughs> there, have to imagine could, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you can imagine that there are two ways to detect that you have a mouse. You could uh, directly observe your mouse because you saw him scuttle across the floor and you go, yep, that's a mouse. I just saw him. Or you could indirectly observe it by saying, okay, um, there are little uh, mouse-sized droppings. There is a uh, bite in the food that I left out and I can hear some squeaking in the wall. Um, And you could then pretty confidently indirectly assume or detect something by saying, I have indirectly concluded that that there is evidence for a mouse being present. But you also kind of, you know, it is hard as well because you need some quite a lot of good indirect ones because the bite from your food could be a hungry small child and the squeaking in your walls could be bad flooring. <laughs> and so with everything in astronomy, this and, and a little bit off topic, but you know, the, the black hole um, stuff that has been in the news a lot for the last few years, that's been, we've indirectly been detecting black holes because we've seen things orbiting something. So we figured out it's probably black holes. And then we had this beautiful image recently so indirect versus direct detection is is quite a funny one because it does also mean that your indirect observations you do have to you you do tend to sample things that are easier to detect indirectly but then you also get kind of you you kind of also reach a philosophical point where you wonder okay but how many indirect observations is actually like a direct one because otherwise yeah. you could say well you haven't well, found uh, an yeah. exoplanet until you directly everything is indirect <laughs> yeah isn't exactly it really? point uh, that is this bias towards discovering massive planets because of the detection methods. So I, I recall that well, uh, when at, the, at the beginning of this, this whole story, as, as exoplanets are being discovered, I remember the news mentioning like massive super planets mm-hmm. or super earths or different categories. And they all try it mean, and it looked as if we were an anomaly being a smaller planet. And and the, for the general public, he started looking at, okay, every other planet out there is 10 times the size of, the size of our yeah. planet or more. Well, but what you're explaining now is, is not, that's not necessarily the case. Those are the ones that we can actually see in yeah. this indirect way. But it does not mean that they are more common than planets that right. are Earth size. And more specifically, they were the first ones we found. And now we're getting better at detection and we're finding more more things. One thing that's very interesting is that if you read a lot of exoplanet articles and things like that, you see a lot of references to hot Jupiters and super-Earths. And they are a classification of exoplanet planets. Hot Jupiters are um, roughly Jupiter-sized planets that are hotter um, because they are closer towards their central star. And then you also have a super-Earths, which are kind of Earth-like planets, but they're much, much bigger. When we started looking at exoplanets, one of the very obvious problems is that we have a sample size of one. That's us. That's really not good data to extrapolate from. So, you know, we figured out, okay, we have eight planets, we have some big ones, we have some small ones, and then we got insecure and we're like, wait, what are all the other planetary systems going on? Guys, is eight planets too many planets? (laughs) And then we kind of wanted to start looking around to see what everyone else at school was up to. What we found is that it's seemingly, and this is kind of where it's interesting to think about whether, you know, the the sampling bias, so to speak, we started looking at the other planetary systems 
what we realized is that a lot of other systems have all of their planets much closer to their central star. They're, they're much, much closer as in both to each other and also to the, the star that they're orbiting. Um, and you have a lot of uh, planets that are in this kind of interim category of super Earths or like Jupiter planets that are uh, Jupiter-sized planets that are, are closer in. And that brings up a lot of questions about how our solar system formed. And if we're odd ones out, then what the heck happened in our solar system when we were forming? From what you're saying, I always hear of the famous Goldilocks zone, the mm. distance from our sun in which water in a planet would be in liquid form, not fully ice, not fully uh, vapor. But then if you're saying that that area in most other stars, or at least in the ones that are observed, are taken by, by planets that are bigger than yeah. Jupiter with crushing uh, gravity Horrible forces, atmospheres. I, I could, yeah, I could imagine that not fun. La is not fun for life no. forming. Nope. I guess. And uh, can we sort of uh, guess? This is so non-scientific, but are we in a sort of special type of solar system, particularly conducive to life, because of this abnormality of of how our planets are sorted or orbiting the star, as compared to these normal ones with super super planets so close to the star? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one of the ideas I'm, about... I'm, I'm completely speculating <laughs> here, so you, you don't have to... No, no, no. It, it, oh, hey, that's what we do. <laughs> we're speculating. The The field is young enough that we're still in the speculative phase um, with a lot of our stuff. Um, but one of the ideas about how our solar system formed is that um, we think that maybe Jupiter and Saturn formed much closer to our star, to our sun, um, than where they are today. We think that maybe they formed around where Mars is. Possibly their orbits became resonant so that they kind of flung out, further out into the more distant solar system and also dragged a bunch of mass with them. This is, this is, this is, one, this is one of the ideas that we have. And um, that could also uh, shed some light on both the super-Earth thing and the hot Jupiter thing because that means that if um, Jupiter used to be closer, if it had stayed there, it would have been a hot Jupiter. And if they hadn't dragged out more mass, then maybe there could have been super-Earths forming as well because there would have been more mass for the inner planets to, to have formed from. Um, but there are certainly other rocky planets that are in the habitable zone is a <laughs> more defined word than uh, Goldilocks zone, even though I prefer Goldilocks zone. Um, but then you also have um, some really interesting stuff because we also talk a lot about what kind of uh, stars have planetary systems. We like looking at, um, it's also, it's interesting to look at planetary systems around brown dwarfs because brown dwarfs um, are much smaller, much cooler. Um, and it means that um, they have habitable zones that are at a different distance that are that are much closer to them, which means that if you have planets closer to them, then they are still in the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone even because the star that they're closer to is colder. So if you're finding planets that are closer to the central star and that central star is colder, then you're kind of okay. But then you also get right. into other questions. You get into questions like, what if there's flares coming off of the star? That's bad news. Um, and you can talk about um, when you have planets that are too close, they can get tidally locked. And that's no fun if you want to have a day like days and nights that are not just horrible, hot yeah, days I, I on remember, one side. Yeah. I, remember, I remember a movie with Vin Diesel in a planet that <laughs> yeah. was tidally locked. Yeah. 
That's yeah. why we look at uh, that that's negative why profiles. <laughs> fun movie, fun movie. But uh, we actually went on a big tangent. Yes, and sorry. So far, we're talking about the wobbling uh, method oh, yes. of detection. And, uh, but there are other ways to, there are other methods yes. to well, observe yeah, I've got, well, I've, indirectly exoplanets. I've got, a, right? I've got a quick question to that. And, and I, I think with, with the wobble method, presumably the only information you can really get is what the mass of that what the mass of that planet is so if 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 it's making the star wobble you can say mm. you can say what its mass is but you can't actually say what its physical size is because it could be gaseous or it could be rocky and obviously then that would yes. change its side but size. you could tell as well the the orbital period yes yeah so, you can the mass and the orbital period I yeah guess. so so you only ever know its mass you don't know its size so therefore you couldn't say anything about atmosphere or anything like that presumably that's what you're interested in I certainly am. <laughs> so a lot of the time we use, um, what we often do is that we use methods in combination with each other so that they can support each other. Um, one of the most common methods today is the transit method, which is when you have a star and, and when you're looking at a star, you can picture the star like a 2D circle and the planet comes in front of the star so it's between you the observer and the star and when it does that it blocks out a little little bit of light you're kind of putting a little shadow in front of it it's enough to notice a, a difference in the luminosity exactly of the star. so so you're looking at the light and you're getting light 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 and then the planet comes in front and it dips down it gets so you're getting a little bit le less light as the planet is crossing in front of that face, and then when it leaves the disk, then the light comes back, and so you're getting this curve um, in the light amount that you're receiving. We call it the light curve. So it kind of looks like a U-shape. But that should be peanuts in terms of how much it drops, right? It's, it's, it's very small amounts. And of course, it depends on the size of the star, and it depends on the size of the planet. The thing that is more useful with this method compared to the radial velocity method is if you're interested in the atmosphere. Because if this small planet crosses in front of the star, there will be a very small amount of light that's also going through the atmosphere um, of that planet. If you imagine that you have a big lamp, right? I'm not looking at the lamp. I'm looking at the wall where the light is hitting. And without looking, you are holding up a piece of paper that's like blue or red or green or something. If you're holding that up in front of the light, I can look at the light without seeing what you're holding up. And I can see, okay, now it's green, now it's blue. And I can figure out what piece of paper you're holding up. And so when the planet crosses in front of the star, we can learn something about what the planet is made out of looking at the light it's produced. But it's not its not even as simple as looking at the color. It's more like you're holding up a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of paper and I have to look at the light to figure out what the paper is made out of. <laughs> so it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, you can get errors in the transit method with, for example, if you have binaries and stuff like that, sometimes the light curve is so small that it can just be an error. So sometimes we confirm candidates by making sure there is both a wobble and a transit, and then in, in tandem, you can use them to, to confirm uh, candidates. You, you combine the observations. Exactly. With the wobble, you can determine the mass and possibly as well the the the, the orbital parameters or at mm -hmm. least the 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 orbit the, the 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 frequency on which the 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 planet goes around the star with the transit method by, by noticing the difference in the light amount you can also calculate the disk of the planet so you right? can calculate the radius yeah exactly and then but it... if you have the mass from the wobble mm -hmm. 
and you have the radius from the transit, yeah. then you can also know the density. Dun, da, da, da. And then you can learn something about what it's made out of. Yay! Exactly. Uh, and presumably, exactly. like, like, like Julio said, if you've got if you've got the mass and you know how often it transits and you know mm -hmm. it's the size of the disk now you now you can have a stab if and it, and if you know what that star is like and we know a lot about stars so if you know what that star is like now you have some <laughs> idea about what that planet is like as in exactly so where does that take us so i mean presume you you actually mentioned the 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 looking at atmospheres thing yeah. How many telescopes are actually capable of doing that? And 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 how near presumably you can't really do this with most exoplanets. Presume they're too far away for that. Because it just seems so insanely yeah. <laughs> the, the <laughs> instrumentation which surely is just oh, incredible yeah. for that. It's 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 really it's really wild to use a technical term. <laughs> um and it's also something that's really kind of uh taken off in the last decade or so. Um one of the things that you need is a significant atmosphere. Not every exoplanet has an atmosphere as well. And you can't really, the, the, this method relies on light passing through the atmosphere. Um, so you can't do it if there's no atmosphere either. Um, and this also means that the planet and the star should be in the same line of sight. Yes, so you need the same us. line of sight. You need one that preferably has a short enough orbital period that you can do a couple of transits. Um, which is a good thing that many planets seem to be much closer to their central stars than, than the planets in our solar system. Um, but the biggest, or one of the biggest problems is that the star is so big <laughs> and the atmosphere is so, so small. Um, and so much of the light is overwhelmingly coming from the star and just such a small percentage of the light is actually going through the atmosphere. So we re need really accurate models of the stellar atmosphere because there's a lot of chemistry going on there too. It's not just hydrogen. There's a lot more um, complicated chemical signatures that go through there. Um, because if you're detecting a little bit of, of, well, say it's hydrogen, how do you know it's hydrogen from the star behind it or hydrogen from the atmosphere? How do you separate the chemistry of, that's going through the atmosphere? How do you atmosphere? separate them, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the, and, sig the signal to noise ratio mu mu oh, must be yeah. That's, absolutely ridiculous. For these kinds of things, we use a lot of uh, ground-based telescopes because they can afford to have really big mirrors like the ones in, at the Very Large Telescope in Chile. But then you also have another error that comes from the fact that it's also going through our atmosphere. So what if you're like, oh, hey, look, there's a bunch of uh, water and oxygen. Actually, you were just looking at our atmosphere. So you also have to um, account for, for that uh, influence as well. So it's really tricky stuff, but, but we do it. <laughs> or we're trying to do okay. it at least. Okay, Lynn, uh, no, uh, no limits in budget spending. Yeah. What, what observatory do you want? I want to cover the moon in mirrors. <laughs> Good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. So we, so our sky would be like a disco ball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice, actually, on the dark side of the moon. Of da, yeah, the, the dark side okay. of the moon observatory mm -hmm. seems to we me. We keep going in the dark. It, it gets hit by the sun. No, so you're know. the far side of the moon. Yeah, far the side. far side. It, the far it, side. You, yeah, yeah. you spoilt it with your Pink Floyd reference earlier. You musician. <laughs> so that yeah, the far side of the moon. I think yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's pretty. So presumably you're excited about this year's launch of the James Webb. 
Oh, terribly. Yeah. One of the big things is uh, actually um, when you ask about what unlimited funding, the thing is you need both space-based telescopes and ground-based telescopes because they have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I want as many as possible of both. And, and JWST is, is going to be a really amazing asset to our arsenal. In terms of like atmosphere, if, if we're really, I mean, let's face it, it's all well and good knowing that there's some rocks spinning around some stars out True. there, which is amazing. But what everyone really wants to know is, do they have life on? You know, presumably that's uh, the that's the ultimate question. Or do they have is... atmospheres that are capable of having something? So can we see these atmospheres from ground-based telescopes? Or do you need space-based telescopes? Or is there just this oh, huge no. array of different ways of doing it? Actually, the... so. Actually, no. the The telescope that I'm working with is uh, a spectrograph called Cryrus Plus on the VLT. That's a ground based one. I'm not using a space based one at all for my research um, because we, we you can get such big mirrors. You can get these um, and and they're they're really state of the art um, because with so much, it's about mirror size. And I mean, we know what a what a pain it is to launch JWST. And that's a big mirror, but it's not as big as the ones we can get on the ground telescope. So, so this is really why why um, having them work together um, by having missions in parallel like this is is the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I mean, joking aside, I mean, I I am deadly serious about the sort of big mirror on the far side of the moon. It seems to be the dream ticket that because you can build something big. And we're not doing anything else there, are we? No, you can build something big. <laughs> it's it's you've got this natural protective sun shield. It's like loads yeah. of things that are going for it. Well, you have to ask the Chinese now if we are doing something there. <laughs> oh not. yeah, that's true. I yeah, don't yeah. know that we're doing anything. So no, we're, well, um, we're not not. There's nothing on the. There's no plans for it, is there yet? No. You take the far side of the moon. You you cover it in mirrors. That's like a big flare light saying, "Hey, uh, aggressive aliens, here we are." <laughs> Yoo Hello. Come and get us. <laughs> exactly. What What are the sort of things that you've that you've discovered by you know discovered in your quest to learn more about atmospheres <laughs> of exoplanets and things? What 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 are the kind of things that you've got really excited about and actually amazed that we can do? Actually, the field is still relatively young, so so much of the things that I've learned in the last few years are also because we've just learned them in the last few years. They're so new, and I think the most the most groundbreaking thing for me has just been the how vast and complex the chemistry in in our universe is um you know that there's hydrogen and helium in in space but to find organic molecules to find buckyballs did you know we found buckyballs in space i know it's incredible I, <laughs> yeah like, no, it's, 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 it's just like, yeah. stupid i'm like how did, how who okayed this um so just the, how how vast and complicated um the the chemical world of our universe is i think that's what's been really exciting and that's something that has been booming lately and will continue to to grow i think because we're getting so good at recognizing more complicated molecules and, and we're getting better capabilities for it and better understanding all the time we're having access to better simulations with with uh improvement in our our computers and stuff like that so it's just a really exciting time to be in this field because it, I mean, it's in our lifetimes that the field started. The 90s were not that long ago. And, and now here we are. So, so we're really just starting to, we're really just getting started. Um, and I'm just so excited about that. Yeah. I mean, in your lifetime, 
Mm. Will we ever get a probat out to an exoplanet? Do you think? Do you think pro- we can? We can <laughs> that we can ever Ugh. go? We really need to go and see this place because this yeah. this is this an incredible find. This one's this one's really cool. <laughs> exactly. This is why I'm a, this is why I'm hesitant to say that this will actually physically reach like man made objects to an exoplanet in my lifetime because they're so bloody far away. <laughs> I know. But it's I'm just. More immediately, what I'm excited about is uh, missions like JUICE, which is going to explore the moons of Jupiter because those moons are actually, we say we think moon, we think small, but the moons around Jupiter, Jupiter's pretty big, so the moons are actually pretty big too. Um, and they have some very interesting chemistry and, and uh, a lot of the things that are going on on them could indeed be like a little terrarium for, for what could be going on in exoplanets. So that's a really cool mission um, for, for us exoplanet people. You've got your bunch of solar system um, mm-hmm. scientists, and you've got your and you've got your exoplanet bunch. Presumably, they 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 have a little chat with each other because you've got because <laughs> you've got these little systems like Jupiter and yeah. its moons and Saturn and its moons that I, I suppose yeah. that you can apply certain techniques. I mean, I guess the really famous yeah. one is the is the Venus one quite recently where they were sort of oh, checking yes. out a atmosphere because presumably that's exactly the same method that you're trying to use on exoplanets. That- Pretty much, yeah. And and um, the, the, the thing that I love about the exoplanet field is that it's so interdisciplinary. We are using people from all kinds of wacky science fields. We got geologists and we got chemists and we got biologists and we got everyone really, all hands on deck. Um, so we can learn a lot from our solar system um when it comes to exoplanets because we we do have a lot of variation um just just in the neighborhood this is almost a bugbear of mine but i don't know whether it's a bugbear with the scientists that 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 kind of are involved in it i mean if you read about exoplanets oh, yeah. you, you almost certainly have got there by the clickbait of uh scientists discover a planet where it rains diamonds and and obviously <laughs> yep, if, if you're yep. a layman reader you actually think that 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 has been seen, that somehow yeah. th- th- we've seen the diamonds. There are big Tiffany's diamonds falling on your head. I love that you said that because that's kind of a pet peeve slash makes me smile all the time. It's it's something that I both hate and love. Um, I'm maybe a bad person to ask because I am kind of totally in favor of us glorifying or not glorifying, but embellishing science news when we're talking to the general public because the thing about science so many people don't like science they really don't care and you know what that's fine i i don't blame them science that you learn at school is kind of rubbish a lot of the time people don't have good teachers all the time some people have wonderful teachers and we love those teachers a lot of people did not have a good experience with learning science at school or whatever if you don't care about science you can't really expect someone to have the patience to fall in love with it if you imagine you have a child and you're trying to teach them to play the guitar, when they're picking up and strumming all the strings, you can't be like, oh, excuse me, where's your finger picking? You know, yeah. you can't, <laughs> if they're trying to kick a football around, you can't shout at them for being offside if they're like four years old. You have to give them some room to fall in love with the concept first. And once they're into it, then they can be like, okay, yeah, I want to do this. What are the rules? And I feel like it's the same with science. I mean, this, you you can't expect people to, to have the patience to learn the rules of a game they don't care about. So I think it's really important 
to dazzle people a little bit with the magic of science because it's really magical. It is really cool. So if you can grab someone and say, hey, did you know there's a planet where it rains diamonds? They can be like, oh, really? And then they want to learn more about it. And then maybe, you know, down the line, they realize that actually that was a simplification or an analogy or something like that. But but you have to have something to draw people in. So with that, I will say I don't mind journalists going over the top with these cool things unless it's you know a more immediate scientific concern i'm thinking like covid misinformation exaggeration that's not a good thing but when we're talking about trying to get people to fall in love with with this more long-term science goals um i think it's i think it's nice in a way um of course, there's always going to be someone in the back that goes, "Excuse me, it's actually not like you know." <laughs> yeah, that's that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you're asking, but if you're asking, do we actually know? Like, have we looked with a magnifying glass and been like, mm, "Yes, beautiful diamonds today"? No, of course not. Um, what we do is that we give an educated guess, and nine times out of ten, if you actually read the paper that these kind of buzzwordy uh, articles and stuff come from the scientists will be very cautious to be like, we have checked this, we don't think it's this, it could be this, like these are our errors and stuff like that. And the, the phosphine paper that or the phosphine discovery that we met, that we mentioned earlier is a good example of that. They made it perfectly clear. They're like, it's not aliens, it's not aliens, it's not aliens. And then a lot of the media was like, aliens! So yeah, I mean, it does also happen like that a lot. Or, or, or the, the the this object visiting from outer space. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good example. So much speculation. Yeah, about it. I remember. Yes. I actually have. I actually remember a few years ago. I remember so specifically. I was at the airport going home for Christmas, and I was reading this paper that had come out. It was about some unknown radio source that they had found. Blah blah blah. There was a big thing in the conclusion. They said, you know, we went through every different thing. We think it's this. We think it's this. We think it's this. Of course, we considered, you know, non-natural um, sources, but it's probably not because blah, 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 blah. And then the next day I was sat in the car and on the radio, they were like, have you heard about this alien civilization that they found? And like, they just said it, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so close. Feel as though things like those kind of science stories. Um, mm. And and especially exoplanets, they do get sort of pumped up by the press. Yeah, and weirdly, they pull at the heartstrings. Yeah, but weirdly, that the 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 things like the vaccine for COVID have been right. strangely un, underplayed by the press. It's it's like right? it's really I think bizarre, the same, yeah. and, and it's like. I, that's the cool thing. Yeah, Never exactly. Mind about well, one, well, one, Never mind about the rain of diamonds. Well, we can save lives. Yeah, well, one's got like this huge stack of evidence for yeah. it. And and, and the <laughs> yeah, other's yeah. very speculative, yet they're really yeah. willing to sort of run with the very speculative and, and not mm. run with the highly backed up and it, it, it's it's, exactly. a it's a strange world we're living in I mean, i've only just when you mentioned the covid thing i was thinking yeah it yeah. runs the other way with that bizarrely right yeah bringing it back to our boy ongstrom <laughs> with the with his quote yeah no but yeah, it, it is true and i mean like people will always be like hmm yeah i'm gonna go with the alien story like that of course that's more fun of course it's that's it's sci-fi it's it's everything um and I mean, as as someone who's like rolling her thumbs and thinking, yes, please increase public awareness and give us funding to build more fancy telescopes. Yes, please. Um, I mean, it's nice that it's a very, it's a very, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, you know, people that work in STEM, a lot of the time, the thing you're working on is really obscure and you could be really excited about it. But if you tell someone like, 
oh, what do you do? Oh, I, I try to make this circuit smaller or something. And people are like, oh, okay. But like, it is cool, but it doesn't sound cool. Exoplanets, our marketing is through the roof. Like that's, <laughs> it's a really um, easy one to tell people because they ask what you do. And you're like, I, I look for aliens on other planets and, and everyone's instantly excited. Um, but um, so when it comes to these articles that talk about, you know, what the, these planets look like, they're not based on nothing. They are based on observations. We have something that made us make that description. Like there was some signal or some detection or some some deduction that was made to to make us think um, they're diamonds or something like that. Um, but it's not, we don't have the capabilities to really see um, things happening on atmospheres with that level of detail. It's, it's, usually, it's usually things like, we know that this atmosphere has this kind of temperature and this kind of pressure and this kind of uh, chemical in it. And we know that this chemical at this temperature and at this pressure does this cool thing, which is like get compressed into a diamond shape and fall from the sky. So, you know, it, it's, it's more like the indirect thing that we're putting the clues together when we're saying, I guess that is what those clues would add up to say, but it doesn't mean that we've gone over there, checked out the diamonds and brought them home. I have to bring a counterpoint to this. I have been thinking, you were mentioning about this beautifying the, the, yeah. the, the <laughs> dazzling, the, yeah. the embellishing. Uh, embellishing, but don't you with that also run the risk of making science seems, see, seem simpler than it actually is? Because even today, even today, sometimes I, I, I run into people that we have made space, space travel. Yeah. So um, towards the 60s and 70s, sounds so simple, so everyday, thanks to Apollo and, 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 yeah. and the shuttle in a way, that even today you have people thinking, oh, I thought we are on the moon. <laughs> yeah. No, okay? absolutely. And, and I, oh, I didn't know that we have not been to the moon since the 70s because... For them, it was like it was so simple back then. Yeah. For the general public, I'm talking. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so why would I? Why would they have stopped? And many people today are assuming, okay, we are in the moon. We have astronauts everywhere. They don't realize how difficult it is. So, could could that be also a risk when you do that with this source of science? Yeah, absolutely, headlines? absolutely. Um, I mean, like I said, there there is an upper boundary for that. Um, I used I used you know. Um, medical stuff as an example or COVID as an example um, but there is an upper boundary where beyond that you get misrepresentation um, and you get people losing interest or something like that um, where that boundary should go I think is very field dependent because in in a field like my field in exoplanets we're so early on that really there's not there's not that much more we can do to impress you because we're we're still in this kind of speculative thing and we just really want to keep looking at cool stuff and figure things out. Um, when you're talking about fields like space travel or or human space travel, um, you're actually involving humans in a much more sort of immediate capacity, I would say, um, and the sort of if if what you're after is funding, for instance which you can, you know, if you generate public interest, you have people care about it more and they're more likely to give funding, et cetera. Um, I think it's a different kind of conversation because then it's it's more, it more kind of directly affects the population. Um, and, and, you know, astronauts are, we're taking humans and putting them in space. 
it's it's a more personal kind of endeavor in science medicine also personal you know you're talking about humans my field we're just looking at at cool planets far away so it's not really uh it doesn't affect people in the same way i would well, guess well i, I d- What's funny is I, 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 to, to run with Julio's point a little bit is that <laughs> We're really I, I, know, I know, but it's 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 a really good one because I think exoplanets is a really good because you've you've put forward an argument I've not really thought about that it may be discipline specific, but yeah. but but the one thing I've noticed and because uh, I, I I through the podcast and through various other things mm. I, I end up I end up being on programs about trying to debunk. Um, you know, sure. conspiracy theorists and stuff like that, and oh, yeah. and you speak to them, and you can, and you and you know that at some point they'll they'll bring up the what is essentially a logical fallacy anyway, but they'll bring it up mm-hmm. anyway that that oh you know oh, yeah. <laughs> I heard some scientists saying about diamond rain the other day, and is there diamond rain? Of course they're not. So why should I believe that we went to the moon? Yeah, and you yeah, think yeah, oh, yeah. yeah they, they have. I know it's obviously a false equivalence, <laughs> but but it's it's like <clears throat> but nevertheless. They're, they're yeah. making a point that the the general public actually resonate resonate with. Oh I think. yes, oh hugely. And I mean, we could do a whole other hour on <laughs> on uh, a public trust in in science. And I mean, you know, a, a certain uh, transatlantic neighbor of ours, you know, I've been uh, having an election that was a lot about trust to science and you know what it means. Then you can talk about politicians' role in science and and. Uh, I do. Whoa, whoa, I, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, guys! <laughs> That's why that, um, that is new. That yeah. is indeed another hour. So, and, and but I just received a visitor from another planet. Uh, yeah. Here, oh. For example, outreach is really important in my eyes because I think you need to reach people when they're kids. Um, that's when the love or distrust for science um, starts or ends therefore shouldn't teach kids to love or hate or really have a preference on science. What you should teach them is scientific literacy in the sense that you should be able to learn because it's a skill that you learn, like you learn the violin or to play a football, you can learn to to do good science in the sense that you look at things and you think, do I trust this? Does this make sense? Let me quickly run through this. And and. It's nothing that's based on intelligence or or capability. It's just something that you can learn to do um, and have have good scientific hygiene when when you apply it to arguments. There's so much misinformation in the world right now, and which is so distressing. You don't want to get to the point where you've told people so many things so many times, and they've heard so many conflicting arguments that they just want to throw their hands up and say, "I'm not listening to you anymore." So it it is really difficult to to strike the balance because I, that's ultimately to answer the question, that's what you have to do. It's a little bit of both. You have to both dazzle, but then when they actually step closer after you did your journalistic jazz hands, <laughs> once they step in closer, that's when you can say, well, actually this is, this is the, this, this is what's up. Yeah. Uh, this I, is what's I mean, actually happening. I, I wonder if, I wonder if all, a lot of the time science communicators and especially popular science communicators and there are some amazing yeah. ones and uh, you know we, oh, we, i mean like amazing. brian cox the other day but literally blew my yeah. mind when he was on he's so Fantastic. he's literally insanely good at it and he doesn't fall into yeah. any of the kind of traps that that other people do but but like but but obviously when he sort of the journalistic thing if yeah you're right and i think that, that you absolutely hit the nail on the head that that when you're at school not being given mm. the facility to learn how to learn yeah. is is that yes, that that's absolutely. that's the crazy thing and and really if it, yeah. if it goes if i go back to my 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 conspiracy theorists 
They believe all the things that they believe all the same things that I know that they're going to believe in. And it's all just a tiny, yeah. and it, it really is a tiny tweak of thinking right yes, at the beginning. Absolutely. And it's really, it's yeah. really frustrating. And and it's not people who who have fallen victim to conspiracy theories. I, I you know, I, I see them as victims in the sense that that um, they have been convinced through some means to believe something um, that isn't in their interest to believe. I would argue, um, and it's not that they don't have the scientific knowledge or capability. They're people who are as intelligent as you and I. Um, but the problem is that when you fall into that kind of hole of distrusting experts, then nothing can convince you because all the other evidence, if you want to, if someone believes um, a conspiracy theory, if you try to get them out of that hole with with more evidence, they're just going to say, that's what the experts would show you. Me. Yeah. You're one <laughs> You're of them. You're a <laughs> yeah, yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why it's so difficult. And, and um, something that there's an analogy I give um, my nieces um, when I talk to them about science. Um, and, you know, I think learning science at school when you're young is so much harder than at kind of university level because you have to memorize so much. And, and then that's going back to the thing about learning science where if you are given um, a bit of a map and it's just like a street and um, a house or something like that and someone says, where in the world is this? Of course, you have no idea. But then if you see another bit of a map and one is a bit more zoomed out, the more you learn about things, the easier actually it is to puzzle them together. And then you can be like, oh, okay, so this part of the map shows this bit and that shows that. Okay, right. Okay, so I'm, I'm here between these two points. And I feel like the more you learn about science, the easier it is to kind of triangulate your knowledge that makes sense. So if you have a basic understanding of chemistry and a basic understanding of biology and a basic understanding of physics, then they actually support you're learning in the other fields because then you can say, oh, okay, this biology thing makes sense because from chemistry, I know this and that. Um, so science kind of gets easier in a way, in my opinion, the more you know about it, but that's never advertised to kids. Kids just do start at the hard end of the pool and then they're like, this is awful. I'm never doing this again. And then they climb out before they get to the shallow end. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is no longer about no, no. Though, so. <laughs> right, let, let's 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 drag let's drag it, but let's drag it back to exo, with no. exoplanets. H have you got a favorite exoplanet? Ooh, um, I mean, can I say can I say Proxima Centauri B and C because they're the closest ones? I have to love them. Oh, actually, there is one that I really like. Um, it's called um, J fourteen oh seven B. And it's a exoplanet that has the biggest rings. It's sometimes, it's been known to oh, be called yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Saturn on steroids. It's just got <laughs> too many rings and it's orbiting around this teensy little uh, star as well. So it's just, just so, so very different from our solar system. Um, How can you observe rings on, on an exoplanet? Um, Oh, this, this could be another hour talking about discs <laughs> around stars and about planets and stuff. Um, you can see them if you have good telescopes, let's just say. Yeah, I mean, in, I guess in the... I don't know like, if I know the exact answer. I mean, yeah, I mean, Saturn's rings are quite quite yeah. seeable, aren't they? I mean, it's it's <gasps> you can you can see them with a pair of binoculars if you're lucky. Oh, my God. I have to tell you my favorite fact that I learned the other day. Did you know... <laughs> that sharks have been around for longer than Saturn's rings. Oh my God. I'm not kidding. How stupid is that? 400 million years ago, we think that sharks <laughs> came and Saturn's rings are like 150 million years old max. 
Yeah, that is my fact of the day. I love that. The sharks were just looking up being like, what's that planet? Pfft, boring. boring yeah. Gas giant. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, that. well, eventually Mars is going to get some rings because Phobos and, uh, yeah. goes past the Roche limit, doesn't it? And, and we'll all we'll become rings at some point. We're just we're all just gonna get rings and it's gonna be we're gonna be the ring solar system. And then there's gonna be some aliens that are gonna be like, Oh, have you seen this exoplanet Earth? It's amazing. <laughs> look at look They'll at how beautiful it, it is. Else, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so is it blue? No, wait. Oh yeah, they had this uh greenhouse thing happen, oh, so it's just a big no, rock now. No, no. Whoops. <laughs> so okay, well let, let's get let's oh, get well. on to our let's wrap it up then. Let's let's our our yeah. final two questions. I'll, I'll yeah. go with the first one, which is if you had to bring someone back from the past to show them about exoplanets who would it be i feel like this is really obvious you know what i'm gonna say right it's got to be carl sagan i would i, I thought you would have said copernicus i thought <laughs> you're gonna go with ongstrom ongstrom no no he was more in exoplanets i don't know if that would have been his cup of tea Re well, i think come carl on. sagan i mean he, well. he would have loved it <laughs> Carl Sagan, Seti, come on. And he died in the 90s, yeah. unfortunately, like right at the cusp of the big boom. I think if he knew what was going on right now, he would be the most excited of everyone. Yeah. But he was born in the same year as my dad. So, and my dad's still alive. So, so yeah, mm. it is, it's yeah, a really sad young. that he's not here, actually, Carl Sagan. Yeah. Yeah. Him and Feynman as well. Feynman as well would have been, um, I don't know if he cared about exoplanets as much as he would probably be more excited about certain stuff. So. <laughs> Feynman was interested in everything. Yeah. He's like, if it... Feynman was just, just interesting, interested. Full stop. Just, he liked drumming. Yeah, he liked drumming. Yeah, exactly. Picking. He was interested in <laughs> yeah. everything. Like, he's, he's the one that I always tell my students when they ask the him. ridiculous question, why are we learning this again? You go, why yeah. are you learning? Well. I don't even... I don't I don't even understand your question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Please leave. Get, get oh, out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. Carl Sagan, it's a, it's a very good choice. Yeah. Sagan is pretty much the reason why I'm here yeah, today same, talking about right. podcasts. Yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, because just like Lynn said in school, okay, you have a certain way of teaching science, especially mm -hmm. in, in the 80s, lots of memorization. But there was this book, Cosmos, in my mom's yeah, bookshelf. Yeah, of course. And yeah, since I was very little, I, I even I remember looking through the pictures at the beginning. You know, and, and eventually then reading and all that. And, and it's a book that always came back. And yeah, it's, I have to say, this guy is, and I sometimes I wonder how many lives were shaped and choices were made to go into space stuff oh, because of him. Absolutely. It must be. Yeah, I mean, well, he's, he's the people. ultimate yeah. STEM ambassador, right. isn't he? But I think I think there's yeah. a few. I think there's few people, right? Like like we mentioned, Brian Cox yeah. and Niels deGrasse Tyson. They're they're all out there, aren't they? That inspire. And I mean, well, Carl Sagan. Just to to make a nice complete circle, what we were talking about about learning about science and falling in love with science. I think the thing that he did so beautifully was to to bring it down to a level that you understand. One of the problems with science communication is that so often. People have spent 20, 10, 30 years learning about their field and they're very excited to show off all the fancy words that they learned to describe certain things that they don't really want to resort back to the, the simple words that still make the most sense to people. Because if you're using all the fancy vocabulary and people aren't following you, then they're not going to be appreciating that. You have to go for the lowest common denominator. You, it's much better to bore people by repeating things that they already know than to alienate them by talking about things that they don't understand. And I think Carl Sagan was such a brilliant example of that because he never shied away from just bringing it 
to be cliche, back to basics. Yeah. Sagan not only invented sort of modern science communication. Science communication, I, I think yeah, he, I think he probably is still the best science communicator because he, he's like he just had a gift. Yeah, that 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 Cosmos program is. St- yeah. is I watched yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. still. I played it to my kids, and I thought it was going to be really dated. But some of the things, like the yeah. evolution stuff, is is incredibly perfect. Yeah. It's like I don't know I how know. else you could have explained it any better. The yeah. calendar of the universe yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It keeps being used and and over and over yeah. again. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> it works <laughs> just. <laughs> exactly, but uh, it, uh, also, uh, Julio, you're going to do the last question because you, you've got a house full of musical instruments. So you could, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Lin Lin has a house yeah, full of Lin's got, yeah. yeah Julia doesn't because yeah. they'd be trashed, wouldn't they? I mean, I, I have to say that Lin has a better microphone than yours. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this whole thing! From an expert point of view, this this microphone's as good as it gets, Julio. It might not look anything, but it's. I mean, after a certain point, <laughs> you're just paying for the name. Lin, from what year is your microphone? Uh, 1968. That is a beaut- And the best thing about it, it's called a Musk recorder, right? Exactly. It's a Sennheiser 44D, I yeah. think. Very good. Very um, good on and toms. Clearly, clearly, I yeah. Uh, basically, all of rumors was, if I remember correctly, recorded on these oh, ones. Wow. So if I sound like Stevie Nicks, you're all welcome. I'm not going to do a Stevie <laughs> Nicks impersonation. <laughs> You'll all be sorely disappointed. So favorite space song. David Bowie's Not Allowed has been chosen too many times. I know. I've thought about this. I'm really torn because, okay, I feel like shout out to Kraftwerk because Space Lab, that's like inventing the fact that synths equal sign spacey sounds, you know? Um, So I would maybe go with that. Um, And I feel like Dark Side, Pink Floyd, I mean, it's not spacey itself, but could it count just because it's a great album? Maybe. Um, I thought of Across the Universe with the Beatles, but actually I think I'm going to say a little shout out to a more modern band uh, because a band that I really like is Fleet Foxes and they have a song called Blue Spotted Tail. And that's about space stuff. Well, it's more about like, I'm sad, so I'm looking up at the night sky. I love you, my darling. Why did you leave me? But still, it's a nice song. It's still, song it's and it's still a about band. space. I like it. Fleet yeah. Foxes. I don't think it's on. I actually think all the other ones you mentioned are... So Fleet Foxes, they've been yeah, taken? they've been taken. So so okay. Fleet Foxes goes on. Yes. Fleet Foxes, you're, you're in. <laughs> Welcome to the gang, yeah. boys. <laughs> they'll, uh, be co- they'll be sending me a thank yeah, you note. Certainly no complaints that Fleet Foxes have made it onto the playlist. Great. Always reminds me of Crosby, Stills and Nash, and and I, I, I oh and, yeah, and I think Crosby, Stills and Nash did, with the Southern Cross. There's another space. There's Ab- a space. Yes. Band. I feel like they actually sound very modern a lot of the time. Like if you're listening to them on a on a playlist and you don't know who they are, you they they could be from now. <laughs> Thanks very much for for coming on and not just talking about uh, exoplanets, but talking about Thank science so science com. Absolutely, Psycho. yeah. Sorry, I was probably more about science com. I there I have so much more. I made so many notes in my head about things I wanted to say about exoplanets, and I've said like four of oh, them out of no. four hundred. So I apologize. I don't know. I don't know about you, Matt, but I don't think this will be. I think this will not be the last no, time. We no, we'll get, we'll, I hope not. We'll, on this show, absolutely. So if you, if you've got something really cool coming up, Lynn, let us know, and we'll we'll get you we'll get you back on. Absolutely, yeah. Please do. I've, I've had a wonderful time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I can't wait to hear how good the audio is, because to be fair, that is an that is actually an amazing <laughs> that is an amazing microphone. Um, Julio, where can people go if they liked the podcast? they should go to interplanetary.org.uk 
awesome. And if you want to go even further, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary where you can join the journey and see maybe a little bit of extra content when, when I've got the time to put it up. But uh, thank you very much, Lynn, for, for, for joining us. And thank you, Julio, for being the, the co-host again. Pleasure's all Lynn, mine. If you... If if people want to join to to follow you, do you would you like to plug something like Twitter account or something? Absolutely, uh, I am on Twitter. Um, I actually I'm really glad you asked because I'm really disproportionately smug about my username on Twitter. It's N P Lin L I N N space because my name is Lin spelt with two N's and M P dot Lin space with one N is a Python command that people often use in programming when they're doing space stuff. And my name is Lynn and it's space. Get it? NP Lynn space, but like MP Lynn space, like the command. Wow. It has to be said, if you're smug, it's the ultimate geek smug I've ever heard. I'm I'm going to give you that. I I would put it on my CV. Um, Maybe in capital letters right at the top. Um, But I mean, I don't know if... uh, do they do they give postdocs based on uh, interesting Twitter names? I, hope I think so. it goes towards some. <laughs> I think it does sort of bolster the markup. It's one of the learning outcomes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, well thanks thanks very much for uh, for coming on. And uh, thank you and, again. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get definitely get you back. Okay, peace out, guys. Thank, thank you so thank much you. for having me.